Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Sverre Ågård. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Bambra. And today we are discussing yet another movie by Gaspar Noé, the 2002 movie Irreversible, starring Monica Bellucci as Alex, Vincent Cassel as Marcus, Albert Dupontel as Pierre, and Jo Prestia as Letenia. And course, directed by Gaspar Noé, and he also does camera work. Yes, on cocaine. <laughs> yeah, partially, that's true. <laughs> So uh, this is one of the most renownedly unpleasant movies. Yeah. With good reason. The story is actually quite simple. There's only about maybe 10 to 12 scenes as such told in reverse chronological order. So it's actually, it's about a couple and the ex-boyfriend of the girl in the couple. They haven't really seen each other for a while. And they're kind of, uh, first you just see the couple, then kind of intimate scenes between them. She finds out she's pregnant. But then they meet up with uh, her ex-boyfriend and they go to a party. Uh, the boyfriend, he's kind of a bit, you know, belligerent and uh, he's a bit of a party boy. So she gets annoyed and she leaves early and gets raped on her way home. And the guys, they come looking for her. They find her severely wounded, about to be put in an ambulance. And then they um, kind of start to figure out who's done this. They kind of hunt them down to a gate club. Vigilante style. They yeah, don't yeah. trust the police to do anything. About yeah, it. that's right. And there's a violent confrontation. Unfortunately, with the wrong person, <laughs> turns out. The boyfriend has his arm broken and is almost raped. And the ex-boyfriend smashes the wrong person's head in with a fire extinguisher. Yeah, in a really gory scene. Yeah, and then it ends up with the, the scene, which is the first scene of the movie which ties into the last film we talked about. Yes. Because um, the character of the butcher, which was the protagonist of I Stand Alone. Yes, we meet the, the nameless horse butcher again. Yeah, and he's sitting in a, a room in his uh, underwear on a bed and talking to another man. And the structure, it, it starts with the end credits. It rolls backwards and the letters are kind of uh, turned around a bit. So Yeah, they're sort of yeah. slanting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The credits themselves start to slant. Yeah, and some of the letters are reversed. Reversed, yeah. Tying with the theme. And as the end credits end, there's a pulse of words like from the creators, who's made it, who's produced it, to a beat, and the letters are blinking. Yeah. And then uh, you start in this back alleyway with just a floating camera, kind of airy. And yeah, uh, the butcher. Yeah, the camera work is super intense in the Mm. beginning of the movie. Yeah. It's sort of twists and turns around mm. constantly mm. and um, and also the sound design and music mm. is very intense you have this uh, sort of low frequency sound throughout the first 30 minutes of the movie mm. which is like uh, 28 hertz or something yeah and that creates a really uh, unsettling atmosphere because the lower in hertz the sound is the more difficult you have pinpointing the direction mm. so it sort of triggers a fight or flight response it's uh, not uncommonly used in, in horror movies and stuff to create an unsettling atmosphere. Yeah, quite drastically used in the first parts of this movie. Yeah, and in addition to that, you have mm. this rolling synthesizer that's mm. sort of oscillating slowly. A lot of the music in this movie is by uh, one half of the of Daft Punk, Thomas Bangalter. Yeah. Music is used in the movie to create a really unsettling atmosphere, basically. Yeah. And um, the camera work also in the beginning is... 
it's like, it's very impactful at the start of the movie. Mm. It smacks you in the head with a super uncomfortable atmosphere. It's very disorientated. Like the very first scene is quite, it's quite unsettling. Just in this, sort I'm not sure if it's a hotel room, but it's a little... Feels a bit claustrophobic and, and yeah. sweaty. And, yeah, there's and, a lot of sweaty yeah, half-naked the, the, guys. The butcher is sort of, uh, he, he's only wearing underwear and yeah. he's, they're like smoking. Yeah. There's like a throwback to I Stand Alone where he talks about how he went to prison for um, raping his daughter, which was left a bit up in the air mm. in I Stand Alone. Yeah. And I heard uh, Gaspar Noy talk about how there was sort of debate after I Stand Alone whether or not he raped his daughter. Mm. And uh, Philippe Nahon, who plays the butcher, mm. he said after the movie that he didn't feel like the butcher raped his daughter. Mm. And Gaspar Noah felt, well, he did. And so he, he makes a callback to that and sort of sets the story straight that, yes, the butcher did rape his daughter. And apparently that's sort of tying in the sort of mm. the ends of the movie and stuff was, you know, is super inspired by Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick had a tendency to sort of tie his movies together yeah. in this, this fashion. So that's uh, directly inspired by that. And the end of the movie, you also have a throwback to Space Odyssey, which was seminal in inspiring Noah to become a, a movie director. And maybe Gaspar Noah inspired the MCU universe of tying movies together. I'm willing to give him full credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the dialogue is pretty interesting in that scene. Butcher says, time destroys everything. And the other guy kind of replies with, we're all Mephisto. Yeah. Uh, and and we, we can't forget the pleasure. And there are no bad deeds. There are only deeds. Which kind of frames, interestingly, I think, the characters and the situations to come. Yeah, and also it's sort of an echo of I Stand Alone. Yeah. There's this talk about you got to fight, you got to live. Yeah. And of course, as a butcher says in I Stand Alone, you, sorry, you got to get your steak or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a sort of base uh, instinct mm. uh, of humanity just survive and get your meat. Which is a sort of nice uh, starting point. For, for this movie and the themes throughout it. But of course, it's not quite thematically in the same place as I Stand Alone. It has a quite clear theme, as you notice throughout the movie. And the thing about time destroys all things, mm. I think is very apt. And of course, is also the sort of ending quote of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So it ties together in a sort of knot, like a sort of Ouroboros or like a snake eating its own tail. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a really like exploration of sort of fate and time. Mm. And that's one of the things about this movie is that it's very conceptually put together. Yeah. Everything's constructed very uh, well in the sense that, you know, it's kind of a negative revenge movie in a sense, and it's kind of twisted on its head in several ways. If it was chronologically made, it would be a totally different movie. And I do think actually Noah has yeah. recently made a new cut of it that is chronological. And he calls it a different movie mm. because it becomes a totally different movie when flipped on its head chronologically. You're sort of forced to deal with uh, extreme sort of escalated situations that you wouldn't normally... In a normal narrative, you would sort of have the framework of understanding why the characters are in this situation. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, you're sort of forced to deal with it almost, well, not objectively, but sort of uh, without the context. Mm. A much more interesting way of, of dealing with the situations in the, in the movie. Yeah, I mean, you have some of the later scenes that are quite tender and uh, quite nice, but like the violence and the shock still reverberates through that in a way that, I mean, I haven't seen the other version, though I heard it's quite good, actually. But um, there you'd go from a place of comfort to discomfort. Right. But here, like, the scenes in some ways at the end are worse because you can just, 
you just know like the coming um yeah there's this violence. sense of inexorably moving towards this mm. doom you know there's this horrible fate and it colors all the sort of nicer scenes mm. like after the maybe an hour mark mm. the scenes are like nicer and nicer because it's flipped on its head the sort of nice scenes have a totally different feeling yeah because you have these horrific scenes of murder and violence and rape in the back of your head mm, mm. as you're sort of dealing with the nicer scenes and putting together the clues and context that you're given throughout the movie mm. in a way that's very, very well executed. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, comparing and contrasting it to I Stand Alone, it feels like a much sort of more well put together movie mm. conceptually. Well, in some ways, it's, it's more of an interesting project. I think that I Stand Alone in a lot of ways it's not lacking conceptually or artistically or how it's made, but this is such a specific thing that's done really well and unlike a lot of things you, you've seen before. And it's, um, it's quite visionary, I think, yeah. and uh, unapologetic um, about its agenda. <laughs> yeah, it really revolves around. Mm. around like, now there's a lot, a lot of circling and, and mm. sort of revolving around and sort of a circular themes in yeah, this movie, yeah. but it, it really revolves around the core sort of mechanic of uh, chronologically going backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also referenced uh, throughout the movie. The main, uh, well, one of the main characters, Alex, the girl who gets raped. Yeah. She's reading a book, it turns out. Mm. Um, yeah, she's reading a book called An Experiment in Time by J.W. Dunn, which is, uh, I think it's from 1926. It's an older book. Yeah, uh, it's a sort of... Uh, ostensibly scientific, but not really accepted mm. in the scientific milieu, dealing with sort of uh, dreams of premonition mm-hmm. uh, and uh, time and, and the concept of time. And uh, in this movie, of course, as we see in one of the last scenes in the movie, but chronologically first, Alex and Marcus, they're in bed and Alex is talking about her dream. Mm-hmm. And the dream is she's dreaming about uh, she's in a red corridor, which... We know because mm. we've seen it. Mm. She's raped in a red sort of underground mm. passage. It's interesting that because it's kind of a reverse premonition in a way. Yeah, but it really fucks with how you like perceive time and and how like things aren't necessarily like deterministic or whatever. It's mm. like this reverse. It's, it really fucks with you. Mm. And it's funny the way they talk about it because they talk about it in a normal chronological sense mm. because you're experiencing it backwards sort of it flips flips the whole thing on its head and mm. it's interesting apparently the book has been quite influential in, in like works of art and stuff but not in like science yeah uh, you know we mentioned earlier that the camera work which starts really sort of spinning and rotating and floating around and as you hinted at apparently for like a lot of the beginning scenes um because it's quite heavy work, even if it's, you know, it's not one of those really old heavy cameras you can do with those. But still, it's pretty heavy spinning around the camera like that. And Gaspar Noah was doing it himself. So um, he was urged to take cocaine <laughs> yeah. uh, to keep going. And uh, I think there's a quote where he says... Uh, yeah, I have the quote here, actually. Yeah. At a point, my arms were hurting and my friends on the set were giving me coke. Yeah. And you feel strong and you feel like a superhero. <laughs> you run up the stairs and turn the camera I was really happy that they helped me achieve the scene. I'm not a strong man at all, but the camera was very heavy. Mm. I had done such a muscular effort that the moment the spell of cocaine was over, the pain started and I could not even raise a glass of vodka. Yeah. yeah. 
And you know he's tired when Gaspar Noah can't even drink his sip of vodka. <laughs> yeah, mm. I find it funny him talking about because it's such a taboo in sort of Western filmmaking mm. drugs and stuff. But he's mm. very candid about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's quite a candid guy, it seems. Yeah, it's funny to hear interviews with mm. him and stuff. But the camera, you know, it, in the very first scene before the um, before the butcher, it's just in an alleyway and it's kind of rotating around eerily. It's kind of uneasy. You're not really looking at anything. It's almost dissociating. And then goes up into this uh, room and it's still kind of floating around a lot. And then as it goes into the gay club, it's really spinning around really intensely and very claustrophobic and uneasy. And you always see flashes of stuff. It's worth noting that the different segments are not necessarily filmed, but they're sort of presented as continuous takes. Yeah. So it feels very dreamlike. And, mm. and uh, even though it's very disassociative, mm. it has a sort of sense of cohesion as well. Mm. So you're in this club and it's so distracting and disorienting mm. and the synth is sort of coming in waves and mm. it's very uncomfortable. And the sound is almost like an alarm going, yeah. like a beat or a pulse of there's something really wrong. Yeah, it actually reminded me a bit of the soundtrack in uh, HBO's Chernobyl, yeah, where you have this very mechanical and almost like, mm. not really music, it's more sound effects, mm-hmm. but it's put to work very beautifully. Yeah, it also reminded me of uh, The Lighthouse, the way the sound of the um, alarm that goes in the background there. Yeah, the blaring horn. yeah. yeah. It's really, it's a nice trick. Like, mm. uh, it's, of course, often associated with Christopher Nolan's movies with a blaring air horn, but that sort of particular sound has been used so much that mm. it's just a cliche at this point. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite the same here because mm. this is like a continuous noise yeah. that's oscillating slowly in a very uncomfortable way. And you're seeing these glimpses of this sordid gay nightclub, mm. S&M club, mm. And in one scene, you have a brief flash of Gaspar Noah himself jerking off. Yeah. And apparently that was put in after the main sort of gay club scenes were filmed as a sort of effort to get ahead of him being critiqued for being homophobic. Yeah. And that that aspect is quite interesting because, I mean, I don't think he's a a homophobic person in the sense that he has anything against homosexual people in his life. But the presentation of homosexuals and trans people in the movie is quite stereotypical. Yeah, and it's not very nuanced at all. It's, no. it's almost played uh, for effect. Yeah, know? definitely for effect. And it's very singularly aggressive and horror-inducing, really. Yeah, and, you know, I haven't been to an underground gay club, but I doubt that they're all doused in red lights with, you know, this kind of super aggressive, violent claustrophobic yeah. yeah there's especially one like um marcus is going mm. around he, he wants to get information on where to find this uh tapeworm guy yeah. latania who raped uh, his girlfriend and he he's like beating this gay man up trying to get information from him mm. and he's like fist me fist me come yeah. on, fist me. and he's like being beaten up and uh, it seems like totally like a caricature yeah of a gay snm guy and it's also like a descent into hell really yeah the, the colors really. and like it made me think of Hellraiser in a way, when that's much more, you know, <laughs> much more palatable. I didn't think about that, but I get what you mean. There's a yeah. sense of like S&M and like yeah. just hellishness, mm. darkness, like flashing lights. Um, I wouldn't say he's homophobic. I don't think that. But at the same time, I don't think he, he has a very nuanced well, depiction of, uh, of sort of um, homosexuals. And but, um, You know, I, I think that also a lot of things have changed since, you know, the early 2000s in terms of, what a lot of people feel is okay in terms of representation of homosexuality. The other thing that's kind of problematic, <laughs> it's kind of compulsively feels like it needs to show the genitals 
of the trans woman sex worker to prove that it's kind of like a man or whatever. It just feels superfluous and a bit it weird. It feels like it's added for shock effect. Yeah. Uh, and also just this crude way of showing the audience that it's a transgender yeah. woman and feels very dated. Yeah. It just upholds a kind of stereotype which is extremely negative and unfortunate, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is an, a weak aspect of the movie. Yeah, but it's it also sort of dates it a bit. It's reminiscent of, uh, I don't know if you watched it, but 8mm with uh, Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. Long time ago. I can hardly remember it, but that it's was sort kind of a thriller of a, with a serial killer. And he sort of goes into this uh, sexual underground sort of yeah, society. Yeah, like uh, snuff. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reminds me of the way it's portrayed there, where it's very, like, played for full effect, mm. for full horror. And it's mm. incredibly unnuanced and mm. um, sort of like a caricature of a sexual subculture yeah. in a way that's very, it dates it. You yeah. know, you wouldn't do that yeah. in this day and age. But, at the same time, like, can you really criticize uh, filmmakers for being of their time? It's yeah. it's a bit, I yeah. don't know. I mean, it, I think it, you can criticize the film for it, at least. Yeah, you can. And it's somewhat of a weak point in this, though it is extremely effective. And the uneasy feel in that situation is just totally overbearing. There's almost nothing like it in the history of cinema. Yeah, it's great. So it's hard to criticize it on that point, too, because it works very well in the movie. Mm. At the same time, I'm sure there are like horrible people. Like there are so many yeah. horrible people in the world. So, yeah. but you can't criticize it for being incredibly like a character almost. Mm, mm. That aside, it works well. Yeah. Know? I mean, like, uh, does a gay subculture need more hate? To yeah. Right. It? Does it need to be more demonized yeah. and pictured more hellishly? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I mean, because it kind of is really like a. Like a heterosexual man's uh, horror vision of what a homosexual gay club is like. Yeah, like, uh, and vision. also his rage is this yeah. this really like uh, heteronormative mm. male rage mm. that we know from his previous movie because it features a lot of the same sort of anger. But of course, mm. in that case, it was in the mind of a complete psychopath. Whereas in this movie, mm. it's a man who's been exposed to some some traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. It's fucked with his head, like mm. somebody, somebody raped and beat the shit out mm -hmm. of his girlfriend mm. to the point where her face is destroyed. Mm -hmm. And he goes into this rage and he's being incredibly homophobic at times. And he's and racist and <laughs> racist and aggressive and horrible. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a hard time faulting him for it after you find out what's happened to his girlfriend because he's just in a primal rage. Mm. And that's also interesting with how it happens, the uh, chronology that... You're in the violence first and then you see the reason why afterwards. Yeah. This violence in the club is quite unpleasant and disorientating and particularly this fire extinguisher, which is, um, I think it's like one of the first great examples of CG animation mixed with puppetry in like cinema because it, it looks incredibly realistic as Pierre. He, he holds a fire extinguisher and he smashes this guy's head in and there's a mini documentary on YouTube where they show the process. Uh, yeah, because it was uh, practical effects to yeah. begin with, but apparently it didn't look realistic enough. So yeah, they, they, they mixed up the, the actor with also like a, just a prosthetic head that he was smashing. And then they did some CG where they, they kind of mapped the face and put it on. Today you do this stuff all the time, but back then... Uh, and it's really effective because it's kind of in the dark, so it looks... Like it's, it looks movements. very good and yeah. it looks horrible. Yeah. And... Uh, one of the things about that scene and the rape scene later mm. is that it's so unflinching. Yeah. The camera just doesn't turn away. Yeah. And as Pierre is bashing this guy's head in, he just doesn't let up. 
You're like, you can stop now. He can still like live, but no, he just keeps going and keeps going. And, and until his head is just a pulp mm. of like brain matter and blood. And yeah. it's so, so visceral. And yet that's not even the worst to come, right? Well, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> because that's more of a, like a splatter thing. Like it's, it's horrible and you feel really bad for the person. Yeah. But, and, the and of course it wasn't yeah. even the rapist. Yeah, it's which, which you find his, out afterwards. Yeah, and there's a lot of small things like that. Like the second time you see it, you you pick up some elements of, of like background characters yeah. that were present at times, and it just makes it more uncomfortable, really. Yeah, because uh, you realize that he nearly got the rapist, yeah. but it was yeah. the guy standing next to him. So yeah. once Pierre has finished bashing this guy's head in, yeah. who I believe is called Mick in the movie, okay, um, the camera pans and you see the rapist yeah, standing he's, there. He's like. Damn, I'm glad I yeah, didn't get he's caught. Standing there smirking. Yeah, and he's almost delighted by the guy standing next to him having his head smashed in. Yeah, he seems almost euphoric. Like yeah. it's, it's fucked up. Yeah. The tenure, the tapeworm. Yeah, which the tapeworm. Is <laughs> Horrible guy. Yeah, he's a pimp and he assaults Alex when he, it's like an underground tunnel. Yeah, it goes under the highway. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Before she goes, because she's, she's looking to cross the road. And then there's a person, like another woman staying there. And she says, yeah, it, don't cross the road. It's safer to go under. Yeah. Which she then does. And this, this red tunnel, which is alarming in and of itself. And then this pimp comes in. And yeah, it's uh, very vivid imagery with the red tunnel. It's yeah. like sort of uh, ominous, just a call around the long, empty hallway. Mm. You sort of feel something horrible is going to happen, even though you haven't seen it yet. Mm. And yeah, and the pimp is kind of maltreating his uh, employee. Who later discovers a trans woman. Yeah, he's like, he's beating up one of his uh, girls mm. who's working for him. Like, there's not a lot of dialogue, but you sort mm. of infer things from the way people are acting. Mm. And there wasn't a lot of script written for it either. Yeah. I think it was a three-page treatment or something. Mm. And Very a lot simple. of it was not exactly improvised, but sort of agreed upon before, like, discussing it amongst the actors mm. with the director and stuff. And so, yeah, he, he talks to this sex worker. They're, they get in an argument. They're fighting and Monica Bellucci's character, Alex, is trying to just, you know, go home. Yeah. And the pimp's worker, she runs away yeah. and he sort of decides. Yeah, he turns his attention towards Alex and... Uh, it becomes, it escalates quickly into something really horrible. Yeah. I've read some critique on this scene that it's, again, viewed in a homophobic light because he's sort of seen as this gay S&M pimp, but he oh, really? decides to rape a woman. I don't really see that because bisexual people exist, first of all. <laughs> and he clearly, like, he, his, his worker is uh, a trans woman. Again, like, I don't really see the... No, I, I don't understand that criticism. No. And besides that, rape is often about power and not about sexual attraction. So he clearly, throughout the rape, makes it very obvious that he's, he's sort of angry at her for being beautiful and mm. rich. And there's a class thing there. Yeah, there's a class thing there. And it also, like, there's echoes of I stand alone there. Yeah. The sort of hatred of people mm. doing well and, and being good looking or, yeah. or like being I mean, good members of society. She's beautiful and she's dressed so nicely. Yeah. And this guy, he has a broken nose or something. He has a very distinct look. Yeah, he's um, a kickboxing yeah, champion in, yeah. in real life. Uh, he has a very distinctive look. Yeah. His nose has like clearly been broken a lot. Mm. There's a huge contrast between these two characters, yeah. sort of meeting of high and low, a sort of hierarchical sense. Mm. And you feel a lot of, like, you get the sense that 
there is more to it than just primal sexual urge. There is a sort of class feeling there. Yeah, because uh, she also represents the, the intellectual class as well. Yeah, the uh, intelligentsia. Or, yeah, the finery of life. Yeah. And he's on the very other aspect of, I'm sure he has enough money, but it's certainly gruff and violent and aggressive and him. insecure. Yeah, and, and he's clearly not like somebody who, I don't know, attends literature <laughs> debates. or <laughs> he, uh, he seems like a violent... Pimp. This this is one of the most notorious scenes ever. As you said, unflinching. It's very unflinching. And of course, at the screening at Cannes, uh, several people fainted, as they tend to do, because <laughs> I don't know what, what's up with the Cannes audience, but they're <laughs> sort of faint-hearted at times. Yeah, Cannes is interesting, I think. There's, there's always, like, I think there's a taste for the spectacle. It's not so rarely that you hear about people vomiting or fainting, and later you maybe see the movie, and, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad. In this case... It is. It is. Not always. And also critics uh, at Cannes tend to like uh, blow things up to uh, nth degree. And a lot of times I've seen critics go back and say that, uh, oh, what well, we said there, maybe it's not representative. We change our minds. There's yeah. something about like the mood of that festival. Which yeah, is, and the sort uh, of sense of spectacle and yeah. theater. And I can sort of understand that but I've, at the same time i feel like some people just go there to faint <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> or it's like back in the day when the famous like clip of the train going towards the screen yeah, yeah, and yeah. they like run out of the cinema oh. like a, a bunch of their descendants probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah um it did get a lot of like criticism but also a lot of praise uh, I think Roger Ebert's review of the movie was quite uh salient in in how he sort of this starts off this review, perhaps how you think he would, by saying it's a movie so violent and cruel that most people would find it unwatchable. But then goes on to sort of go into a deep dive mm. about what actually makes this movie work. Mm. And he makes a case for, and I agree with him, he makes a case for the movie being uh, at its core a moral movie. Yeah. Because it is in reverse chronological order. So you're sort of faced with these incredible violent situations in a sort of like I was talking about earlier in a sort of contextless space where you really have to deal with it, these situations on their own terms mm -hmm. instead of these being sort of escalated situations in a normal uh, movie narrative in a, like a dramatical curve where yeah. these would be mm -hmm. like beats you would hit to create an effect. These are also like put in there for effect, but they're put in there in a way that, that creates a space where you have to view them in a different context. Yeah. You know, it's it's very far from being an exploitation yeah. movie. And a lot of that has to do with like the artistic vision and like the way it handles its themes. But it's also about how the violence is used and portrayed. I mean, it is very confrontational, but it's not titillating, you know. No. It's very uncomfortable. Whilst, you know, in an exploitation movie, typically it's there. It may be uncomfortable, but it's also there for fun. Yeah. There's no fun to be had. There's no the titillation there. at all. It's all just sordid and horrible mm. in the worst way. It just takes violence very seriously as an unpleasant and problematic thing. Yeah, and I love that approach with unpleasantness mm. and violence and rape and horror in movies. When it's being taken seriously, instead of, I know we've talked about this before, mm. but instead of being like titillating or mm. sensationalized or being uh, used for effect in some sort of a sensual way or whatever um, to scare or shock for its own sake. It's often a lot less interesting than when you force the viewer to sort of confront these things that mm. are happening in our society. 
but are seldom talked about and seldom dealt with. And it's incredibly exciting when movies go into these territories where you have to confront sort of the humanity of, of these horrible actions in a way that's so seldom done in a good way. Yeah, well, uh, it makes a clear divide between, you know, culture as entertainment and culture as a tool maybe or a, a way of exploration or, or yeah. a way of examining culture. Yeah. And in this kind of very sort of conceptually artistic package, I think it's a good sign of a society when it produces this kind of artwork, when there's room, uh, when you don't censor and hide away this kind of product as a way of confronting the problems of society instead of trying to hide them away or... Um, yeah. At the same time, this is an incredibly visceral and mm. uncomfortable movie. I think anybody who's experienced sort of rape or sexual assault, stuff like that, it could be extremely triggering to yeah, watch this. Yeah, potentially, uh, as you say re-traumatizing yeah it's Mm. because it's so well done Mm. like the it's incredibly realistic and uncomfortable um and the nine minute rape scene is Mm. like i'm used to terrible shit and Mm. we talk about terrible shit all the time but i had to watch like look away a couple of times (laughs) it's just it's It's so unflinching it's heavy yeah and that's good that's good in this movie and it's good as social commentary and it's Mm. good to make people uncomfortable sometimes it's good to sort of pull you out of complacency and uh, make you think about this shit. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of other aspects to this movie that I think maybe aren't um, talked about. Yeah, I don't even much. think that's the main theme of this movie. No. In, in no. my view, like to me, I feel the main theme is fate and time uh, and the sort of uh, inexorable arrow of time and how our decisions, are they sort of, do we make decisions? Do our choices sort of, is the universe deterministic? That's sort of the overall sort of stuff that I ended up thinking about after the movie was done. Mm. Um, and it really it really does make you think, this movie. It's not just like a, a tropey thing that you say. It, it really does make you stop and think because the way it's put together is so, so weird, really. Yeah, there's like a meta element to that as well because films are typically deterministic narratives particularly, let's say, horror or thriller, they tend to have a deterministic theme. Yeah. And this kind of flips that a bit on its head and examines it in a way quite interestingly. Yeah. And I think Alex mentions that too. Like, I'm not an object. I decided. Mm. And she decided, but ultimately, even the smallest choice you make can have these unforeseen consequences. Mm. And when you see it in reverse, you get this real sense of... (laughs) irreversibility or like yeah. it's irreversible you can't you can't change the past but maybe you can't change the future either well i mean for me at least it touches very well upon like the emotional core of this kind of situation not necessarily how memory works but how it kind of feels to deal with like a irreversible situation so much of the movie is placed in the emotional core of what's happening mm. And you're always um, processing things on a level of the senses yeah, uh, to a larger degree than intellectually thinking about it. A film like I Stand Alone, for example, works very efficiently in terms of examining societal problems and yeah. people. And where there's an undercurrent of that here, you're much more emotionally invested. Uh, I and, agree. It um, feels a lot like the way the human mind processes trauma mm-hmm. In a way that's slightly reminiscent of um, a movie we've talked about earlier, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, 
which also has this sort of reverse chronological thing going on yeah. in tandem with some other stuff. But, yeah, it switches around. But that movie too deals with sort of um, how the human mind processes trauma. Mm. Does it in a different way, but I feel like both of those movies have this emotional core to them that's not really intellectual. Mm. It does have it's very an, felt. Yeah, it's very felt. It does have an intellectual aspect to it, but that's not the main point of it. Mm. It does have this really sort of sense of trauma, mm. brokenness, yeah. and and how the human mind just copes with it. And particularly in Irreversible, how it starts very dissociative, and then you know towards the end with the much more naturalistic scenes, also longer takes and mm. just observing the couple naked in their apartment. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of tenderness and there's a lot of good examination of relationships. Even though, you know, in some ways they're quite minimal, these these scenes with the characters, like yeah. uh, a couple. Um, it's worth noting they were a couple in real life at that time too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you can feel the chemistry actually. Yeah, they have great chemistry and they didn't get divorced until 2013 or something. They yeah. were together for a long time. Yeah, all famous couples get yeah, divorced. Yeah, and uh, of course, but well, all couples get divorced these days. <laughs> uh, that's some social commentary for you. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you really get the sense of the intimacy and stuff. It, it really mm. works well. Mm. And it wouldn't have been as well if the chemistry wasn't there between these no, two no. characters. And, and another thing that I really like about the character work is that it very efficiently and very nicely shows the dynamics and twists them on their heads. Like Marcus, when you first see him in the film, he's very animalistic, he's filled with rage. You have a lot of his um, his fury. And then you see his irresponsible side where he's at the party, he's making out with other girls, takes a bit of cocaine, he's really enthusiastic and hyper. Yeah, making and, out with some other girls. He, he, likes, he wants to be a bit... Yeah, but you see some aspects of a more sympathetic side where he's trying to get the other guy out of his shell. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a dick at that point. It just seems like somebody who's partying a bit too hard. Yeah, a bit dickish maybe, uh, yeah. but not not an not an arsehole. No, uh, a bit um, self centered maybe yeah. in that situation. And Pierre, on the other hand, he's he's trying to restrain Marcus at the club and saying, uh, uh, "Let's let's leave. Let's not encourage more violence and stuff." Even though he ends up being the violent one, he's much more reluctant to go into the um, vengeance of it. Yeah. He and, seems more like a pompous asshole, in my view. Well, yeah, that that also comes, and he the side of him that's much more restrained and passive aggressive and, uh, and intellectual, yeah, pseudo intellectual or whatever. He seems like he wants to come across as this smart guy, yeah, and that he he doesn't really have. He's not very well in touch with his feelings, and they, they have very frank conversations about sexuality, where he's he's asking them about orgasms. Because she didn't orgasm in their relationship, and he's really concerned about whether or not the other guy manages that. Yeah, but it does seem like he has like ulterior motives mm. and some bitterness and jealousy. Mm, absolutely. And uh, and I also I really liked the way that he's sort of he, because he seems like the meekest, kind of annoying, mm. sort of like the beta male mm. uh, in a sort of a traditional alpha beta dichotomy, and yet he's the one who sort of goes totally berserk at the end of the movie. Yeah, but also I think it's it's important to say that when you first start to meet him, uh, I mean, not the uh, fire extinguisher, <laughs> but like at the party scene, yeah. he's kind of saying to to Marcus, um, you know, well, you're not thinking of Alex. Why are you going around and making up with these girls? She's dancing all alone. You should be with her and that sort of stuff. It really nicely f- flips around some of these dynamics. And then Marcus in, in the end of the movie, he's very tender, he's very in touch. He's very, um, 
observant and perceptive of Alex. And their dynamic is very fluid yeah. and believable. But Pierre, and, he seems he seems obsessed with Alex. Yeah. Like there's this um, these scenes at the party where he yeah. just wants to watch Alex dance mm. in a way that's just if I was her boyfriend, I would find that just really weird. Yeah, well, Marcus isn't threatened by Pierre. No, because Pierre reason. just comes off yeah. as this sort of slightly yeah. creepy dweeb. But there's always something, there's something nice, even though the first part when you see them interaction, you can always get the feeling that they're old friends, although we learn later that they're not. But he's, Marcus is kind of trying to get him out of his... Uh, did they say he, he hadn't dated since the relationship or something? He's he hadn't to, dated in three years yeah, or something. Yeah, um, and, uh, and Marcus is trying to to get him, you know, more involved with the other girls. And we're talking about, like, how do you deal with things and what's your problem and, and how can you do... And there's, Yeah, well, Marcus seems, like, genuinely mm. kind of tolerant and positive towards Pierre. Like, he wants to help him. Yeah. Even though he's sort of... He's not very, like, sensitive. He he does seem to exhibit, like, some, some real level of tolerance mm. towards Pierre, which contrasts with his total rage at the mm. end, end of the movie. He's capable of a lot, like there's a broad emotional spectrum of this mm. character. And Pierre too, obviously. Yeah. And I think there's some nice nuance to the character work there. And, you know, if you didn't have the violence at the end, if it had been a straightforward, like a relationship film with just these three characters, as a completely different type of film, I think it could have worked really well. As I may be wrong, but I think mm. that was the initial conception. Gaspar Noir wanted to make a movie about uh, a well-functioning relationship. Okay. Uh, I may be wrong there, but I, uh. I think I read that somewhere. Because you can see it working on that sort of, as a, just a relationship movie. Because the dynamics and the characters are mm. very well conceptualized. Mm. Even though apparently there, uh, there wasn't a lot of script, yeah, you know, the yeah. characters felt very, very well-rounded. Yeah, it feels, yeah, it feels very natural. Mm. And, you know, in some ways, at least for the first, first time when I saw the movie, I kind of, of course, the very traumatic, intense scenes that stuck with me more. And I hadn't thought so much about the later scenes, but uh, they're really quite nice. And particularly, I like this scene with a couple before they meet up with Pierre in yeah. their own home. And they're kind of going around naked and on the bed. There's a bit of that sexual activity, but it's also just that, like the... It's quite playful. Yeah. But also just the, like the, the small interactions mm. of how they look at each other and the small talk. And it's really well done. It is really well done. And then you, that's the third last scene, I think. Mm. And then after that, you have the second last scene, which mm. is her finding out she's pregnant. Yeah. Which, of course, colors everything you've seen so far. Yeah. And it's really brutal because yeah. it yeah. sort of makes all the horror that much worse. Yeah, it's, it makes it so heavy. Because it, it kind of ends in this hopeful space. Mm. Um, she's in bed and above her is a poster of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, the ultimate trip or whatever. And you sort of feel like she's going to get pregnant. Like it's going to be like this great journey for mm. her. But but really it's just going to be a descent into hell. Yeah, the way it reveals it is quite nice because she's, she's taking a pregnancy test and looking at it. And you can't quite tell her looking at her what the result is. But the camera kind of tilts up to the uh, post of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey <laughs> yeah. with, the, with the baby yeah. from the end of that movie. And then, yeah, you realize she's pregnant. And, and then, then the yeah. ultimate scene of the movie with the sort of flashing strobe lightning that sort of resembles the universe at the end and the text time destroys all things. Yeah, yeah. Because she's in the park, she's reading the book and which she refers to it uh, earlier and kids around and the camera kind of, it's upside down and it mm. sort of flips over on her and then it goes over on um, like a watering, spinning watering uh, 
hose thing. Yeah, on the lawn with children yeah. uh, playing around it. And again, the spinning thing. There's yeah. a lot of like visual yeah. symmetry throughout this movie that's very, uh, again, like ties into the whole circular mm. uh, and, and time themes. Yeah, because the camera starts to spin there. Yeah. And as you say, it blinks very epileptically. Yeah, it gives you an epileptic yeah. stroke. And it's really nice, this effect. Because you see like kind of an unclear close-up of the of the water spinning around and it looks almost like a twirling galaxy or something. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, yeah, as a, as a visual um, effect, it's quite nice actually. Yeah, and then the brutal finality of the starting and ending sort of quote, time destroys all things, mm. which again ties into what I think is the sort of theme of fate and time and, and choices and consequences. But it's... Even though it's like a, a brutal and, and harsh sort of ending to that, there's still this sense of like, I don't know, maybe just because the last scenes are kind of tranquil and stuff, it, mm. it doesn't feel so brutal when the when you, the movie's done. I don't know. Maybe also because you feel like you witnessed uh, like a good piece of art. <laughs> I don't know. I, I felt yeah. like it's it's quite like a satisfying conclusion to the movie well, in a way. But it's also somehow more brutal because... Like all that trauma has kind of settled in your consciousness. Yeah. And then, but, and but then the, you get the calm and the revelation of the pregnancy and you have like the seventh symphony of Beethoven going and uh, puts you out in a way that when you leave the cinema, you're not left with a satisfying conclusion. You're kind of hanging on a bit. Yeah. And then you go and pass out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I know what you mean. It does put everything in a worse light and it does sort of um, mm. intensify the horror. Mm. But that makes it a better movie, mm, I agree. which is what I mean mm. by satisfying. It elevates the movie, the themes and the way it's put together and the chronology mm. elevates the movie into being more than just this tragic tale. Yeah, you know, I agree. It kind of has a, almost an existential layer to it. Most of the themes could have worked also with like a circular narrative if it had been, you know, chronological in following. But yeah. it has this kind of deterministic, existentialistic examination as well, which uh, ties very well with the theme. Yeah, and just the cyclical mm. nature of it mm. and just humanity and mm. repeating mistakes. And mm. I don't know, like there's a lot of thoughts you get watching mm. this movie. And it's just uh, like the movie is so well done that it really... And very emotionally strong. Gaspar Noe's career outside these two movies, I Stand Alone and Irreversible, is, is a bit of a mixed bag, I think. He had the end um, of the word, which is interesting, a bit structurally not very tight maybe, but there's a lot of interesting things about it. And then you had Love, which I didn't see, but didn't seem very interesting. And then his last film, Climax. Have you seen it? I have not. Climax, it's kind of a film about like, this big party, this dance group hanging out and things kind of devolving into like uh, animalistic uh, weirdness and there's drugs involved. And it's, you know, very effectively made. It's often talked about as a return to form, but it's... You know, it starts the same way as Irreversible with the end credits rolling backwards. Mm. But it has nothing to do with any themes of the movie. Now it's just a trope that Gus Bonner is using. And that's kind of the problem with that movie. That that's he's, sort of disappointing. Yeah. Because in Irreversible, like everything yeah. just ties into the theme yeah. and, the, and the mechanics mm. in a way that's just so satisfying. Yeah. Even though, I mean, he already has some tropes established like with the very bombastic blinking uh, titles and that sort of stuff. It's very coherent and suited. Whilst when he does the reverse credits later on, it doesn't have anything to do with the project. It just has to do with him. And, the aesthetics uh, of, his, of yeah. him as a movie maker. 
it's less interesting yeah. uh, on a artistic level. I think you could easily say that from now on, he starts gradually becoming less interesting. Mm. Um, these two films together are very interesting. They fit together nicely, and yet they are quite different. Very different, yeah. Um, like you mentioned earlier, I Stand Alone feels a lot more like societal mm. commentary, whereas Irreversible feels a lot more human, not humanistic. No. <laughs> but Precisely. it feels a lot more human-centered on the experience of just being a human. And even larger themes like time and, and fate and stuff, but also smaller themes of just... Um, of of uh, trauma and uh, dealing with life. Yeah. And more like centered on the emotion of experience. Yeah. I think I Stand Alone kind of taps into that as well towards the end specifically when he has the two different endings that he's yeah. exploring there. Which is, you know, there's an experimental element to his uh, filmography which really comes to fruition perfectly and irreversible, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's not clear cut. You have sort of echoes of both movies in each movie. Mm. Um, they feel very, very strong. Like him as an artist and filmmaker, he, he does seem to have a very clear vision of what he wants. And the vision is quite pure in a sense. He doesn't try to... That's one of the things I like about this movie. It feels very clear cut in the way it's approached. Yeah. The mechanic is quite simple. The script is quite small. Yeah. There's not a lot of characters, but there's a very clear sense that he knows what he wants. Yeah, it's very specific. Like the dialogue scenes, they're not superfluous. Everything carries weight in terms of the narrative and the, the concept. There's very little fat yeah. on the bones of this film. Interestingly, uh, I read that the the normal chronological cut of this mm. movie is four minutes shorter. Oh, yeah. So apparently you had to trim some stuff that didn't work when you showed it chronologically. Well, it would be interesting to see... I'm not sure I'll do it very soon, but <laughs> at some point I, I would be interested to see uh, the chronological version. Yeah, I think it would be like a totally different movie because the reverse chronology is mm. so important here. And in large part, it was inspired by Memento, which yeah. is, yeah, th that's interesting to think about because I think Memento is a not as good movie. Yeah, Memento is, it's a very... Uh, a well-made thriller with a gimmick. Yeah, it's a, it's a good uh, it's entertainment well movie. Yeah, well-acted and, yeah. and uh, stylish. Mm. Um, it's the kind of movie, you know, it's one of these early Christopher Nolan films that promises an interesting career. Whether or not that's lived up to is another question, but <laughs> it's, it certainly I remember seeing that. I thought, oh, that's interesting. In some ways, you could almost think that Irreversible would have been the film that inspired Memento instead of the other way around. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it's, that's it's, why I found it interesting yeah. because it's... Uh, like inspired by such a artistically weaker movie. Well, artistically in the sense that you don't get any like extra thoughts or like extra commentary. You don't yeah. get the sense of any comment upon the mm. human condition or anything watching Memento. You yeah. just, there's a murder mystery sort of in reverse. Yeah, uh, which is, you know, it's cool. Yeah, that's cool. I think that film was based on a short story by Christopher Nolan's brother, who also does write a film, Westworld and stuff. But, you know, Irreversible was partially funded. That's how he managed to fund it. With like the promise of a memento-like yeah. revenge film. Yeah. I don't think the people who funded him had any notion of what it would end up as. No. And <laughs> I don't think you could find much funding for this if you explained it, how it would turn out to be. Yeah. Well, maybe, but uh, I think it'd be more difficult. Maybe. But I would have a hard time walking mm. into sort of a boardroom and mm. pitching a nine-minute rape scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need some serious clout uh, yeah. to get that stuff done. And, uh, but it's good that it did, yeah, because it's a really, really good movie. Mm. 
And one of the best uncomfortable movies and unpleasant movies. Yeah, and probably one of the absolutely, I mean, there's, I struggle to think of one that is more unpleasant, but equally pleasant, unpleasant maybe, but more unpleasant is, is difficult, I think. Yeah, but, but also it's one of the most unpleasant movies ever, but it's also one of the movies where this unpleasantness is used to make a point. It's yeah. not just unpleasant for the sake of mm. it. And that truly puts it in the, the, the highest echelon. echelons <laughs> of, of unpleasant movies. It's just... Yeah. It's unpleasant and it uses its unpleasantness to maximum artistic mm. effect. Yeah, kind of similar to Come and See, I think. Yeah, yeah, Which definitely. Is, I would yeah. put those in the same category. They they are unflinching and just these deep, hard looks at mm. some really horrible sort of sides of humanity that make you think and make, I think, make you grow as a person. Hopefully, yeah. Unless you faint. <laughs> or... Um... Uh, shift your eyes, shift your gaze. Yeah, avert your eyes. <laughs> so, Sverre. Do you happen to have an unpleasant recommendation for us? Why? I actually do. Oh, nice. So my recommendation this episode is, well, I think a lot of people have actually heard about this. Mm -hmm. It's a song. Mm -hmm. But on the off chance that you haven't heard it, I would recommend it because it's uh, one of the best unpleasant songs I know. All right. And it's a song by the Velvet Underground written by Lou Reed Mm -hmm. and it's called Heroin. It's from their debut album, the Banana oh, album. Yeah, classic. Uh, Velvet Underground, Nico. And it's just a song sort of describing heroin use and heroin addiction in a way that's not really judgmental, just sort of describing the intensity of it. And what makes it really great, in my opinion, is, well, first of all, it's a well-written song and mm. the lyrics are good. Is it like a story sort of? Narrative? No, not really a story. It's, mm. it's more like a, just the experience of it. But what takes it from good to great, in my opinion, is the way it's recorded and produced mm. and played because it's the sounds in it are really uncomfortable and yeah. quite um, grating. Mm. And it's sort of the whole song just sort of grows in intensity. It grows and grows and grows and grows. And sometimes there's a lull in it, but then it keeps growing mm. in intensity and disharmony. And uh, it just makes it amazing. For a single song to be that intense, I think it's amazing. And the subject matter also is so far ahead of its time. It still feels fresh. What's the soundscape like? What kind of sounds? What kind of... Uh, is it melodious or...? Well, there's a guitar. It's it's sort of the standard uh, Velvet Underground um, production with sort of a guitar and sort of uh, drums. And you have uh, strings and you have uh, this sort of discordant sounds that grow. Mm throughout the song. And it's also very like drony. There's no sort of chordal changes in the discordance. It just keeps growing like a single note. It's kind of reminiscent actually of the sort of synth work in Irreversible. Mm. And it serves serves sort of the same function, except it's much more dynamic because it grows. And it creates this beautiful discordant masterpiece of a mm. song, uh, Heroin by Velvet Underground. And of course it's a famous song, a lot of people have probably heard it, but if you haven't, then fucking check it out. It's yeah, great. It's a really good song mm. and a great album. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's probably my favorite Velvet Underground song. Yeah. 
they also have in terms of using unpleasant sound i think uh, venus and furs has this uh violin that's kind of jarring and intense yeah, it's jarring and it's also sort of droning yeah. a lot of good velvet underground songs have this uncomfortable mm. droning ambience to it that's just great and so far ahead of his time yeah yeah it's pop but it's kind of it's pop but it's clearly coming from a very artistic yeah some experimental art, elements experimental yeah. art scene you mm. know the whole andy warhol stuff and it's interesting it's not my favorite band by a long shot mm. they but they have been incredibly influential yeah and for a good reason they do have some classics yeah so do you have a, a good recommendation i do it's also a song yeah uh bit less famous, but no less shocking, I'm sure. Provoking? It's uh, a song called Dance with the Devil by a rapper called Immortal Technique. And this is more of a, a story. He relates a story, ostensibly true, of um, a young man, a kid called Billy, who's like uh, obsessed with like material shit. And he wants to prove himself in his gang. And it's really like a hardcore milieu. So they kind of demand that he uh, rape a woman and they offer. So he's talking through this kind of story and um, has this sample of Sonata for Viola on harpsichord. It's really brooding and sinister. There's a brutality to it. It's kind of hardcore rap. He's, he's just talking very directly and um, it has its rhyme and stuff, but it's very unsettling. You really put through like a marathon of, of situations, unlike a lot of rap that kind of glorifies violence or gang life and that sort of thing. This really puts that in a, in a very negative perspective. Without being preachy, I hope. I think that's a, um, often when it's mm. dealt with in rap, mm. I think the approach often is a bit too heavy handed and moralistic. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't feel moralistic. It feels very honest, I think. Mm. There's a directness to it. I mean, he, he ends the song by saying that he was a member of the gang, essentially, that this happened and that it, it leaves a trauma in not only the victims, but also the doer. You can't do these things without hurting yourself. And yeah. It's kind of a character piece that explores, you know, problems of gang life and the cost of violence in a way. It's, it's really good. It's really good. It's very strong. It's, it's a heavy listen. When is it from? Well, the, the album's called Revolutionary Volume 1, which I... I may believe might have been kind of a self-produced thing with kind of basic production values. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think he kind of printed it himself and, and, and sent it around and then he had his second album, Revolutionary 2, which kind of got more attention and then this kind of backwards, you know, got more attention. Because it was originally released in 2001 in this, you know, minor way and then re-released in 2004. That's probably when it gained some traction. Yeah, so that's like on the cusp of the bling era of hip-hop. Of course, mm. if I recall correctly, like Immortal Technique was more of those, um, like him and Mos Def and, and artists mm. like that were, who were more like into the cerebral and technical yeah. side of yeah, yeah. hip-hop at that and time. There's a seriousness to, to the approach, which yeah. isn't so um, self-serving in a way. That's cool. I haven't actually heard that. I haven't listened a lot to Immortal Technique, but I'll give that a shot. Yeah. It sounds interesting. I haven't listened so much to him either, but this one I came across and it just, it just knocked me over. Nice. Mm. It's a good one. That's all you can ask for in a song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just got to knock you over like a domino. And yeah. the result is that you bash someone's head in and it's the wrong person. Yeah. He bashes someone over and then everyone falls over and society's just... Collapsing. Collapsing dominoes. Again and again. Deterministically so. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so next, uh, next film we'll be talking about, I think we can continue a bit looking at specific directors. I want to go to Scandinavia and I want to explore some films by Lars von Trier. Famous Danish lad. Yeah. We're going to start with uh, my, my favorite of his films. It's uh, Antichrist, which is a really good movie, really strong, really unpleasant. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. The music for this episode was done by Umulium. That's you, Skarning and Sverre Ogor. And if you'd like to see what other unpleasant movies we recommend, you can check out our list on Mubi. That's just unpleasant movies on Mubi. There's a list there. And that's it for now. So I hope your life is better than the films that we talk about. Hopefully. And uh, that you're doing well. And uh, if you quarantine, that you're quarantining well. And if you're an essential worker, then we hope you are doing your essential work well. Yeah. So thank you for now and uh, take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.